Hey listeners, hey Brian, welcome to the 102nd episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Hey Dan, good evening. We are deep in the the bowels, the dark and spooky underbelly of of Spooktober, Brian. Yes, and so we're going to be discussing something very chilling, gut-wrenching. That's right, I, I picked out just the most psychologically devastating, harrowing, horror film I could come up with, and that is the Disney Channel original film series of four movies entitled Halloween Town, and the sequels are Halloween 2, Calabar's Revenge, Return of Calabar, I can't remember, something about Calabar, Halloween Town High, and then Return to Halloween Town. And Halloween Town Kills and Halloween Town Ends. (laughs) Halloween Town H20, 20 years later. Oh, man. Brian, I, I assume you are aware that I have been watching the Halloween series as well. Yes. How has that been going? So I just finished Halloween Kills, so I have one left. I've been watching them almost one a day. I've, I've had a few days off in there. Um, kind of psychologically exhausting to watch that many slashers in a row. And man, I got a lot of thoughts on this series. You know, unless Halloween Ends really surprises me. I only have the original above a five. I think they are all pretty hit or miss uh, other than the original. But there's just so much variety in this one. Like every single one feels like it's trying to do the style du jour. There's like the post scream ones. There's the ones that were kind of adjacent to the torture porn saw style movies. Those were the Rob Zombie ones. And now it's kind of like a prestige elevated horror like an a24 type movie with this this latest reboot although it's not really a reboot because the timelines are all weird they like some of them follow halloween one only some of them follow halloween one and two some of them are total new reboots so man it's been it's been a trip but i'm glad that uh i got to talk about it here because i also wanted to catch up on in the scream episode last year i introduced a kind of curriculum of slashers that was brought by Brennan Klein, who is one of the hosts and contributors to the Alternate Ending podcast and website. And he is a true slasher aficionado. And I asked him to say, hey, if I wanted to get into slashers, assuming I'd seen nothing, what should I do? And he said, go through these series and go as deep as you're willing to go into the sequels. And so first he had Scream and then he had Halloween. So... Uh, I'm kind of on Slashers 102 if Scream was Slashers 101. I think that's what I titled that episode. So I thought about picking it for for this uh, pod, but I figured we got plenty of other things we want to watch during Spooktober, and I I think I'm not sure it would have been the most fun conversation anyways. Right. Well, it's just a lot of movies. Yeah. It's How many is it? It's like 12? Yeah. So on, on Saturday, I had a net gain of zero halloween movies because i finished one and also the 13th one came out so they're up to 13 now well there you go yeah that's a lot of films also not that we should be beholden to any other podcast but buzzed on movies has done dedicated episodes for each film in the series so i'm glad that i was able to convince you to discuss another halloween franchise yeah 
Yeah, and by the way, listeners, if you want to read up on my experience watching the Halloween movies, I have done a pretty in-depth retrospective, a review of every movie on thegoodsreviews.com. So you can find it there. But yes, back to the matter at hand, and that is something far less grisly, despite our our, uh, jokey opening. That is a Disney Channel original movie series, Halloween Town. The first one came out in 1998. So I had never seen any of these four movies prior to this week. Brian, what about you? I had pretty much not seen any of these. Uh, Certainly not in their original run, although I do remember... Halloween Town High and Return to Halloween Town coming out, the third and the fourth chapter in, I believe, 2004 and 2006. You may remember that High School Musical, for instance, was a 2006 Disney Channel original movie. Uh, Read It and Weep was a 2006 Disney Channel original movie. So I was tuned in by that point. But, you know, I couldn't just dive in on the fourth one. But I will say that in 2019, for my public access horror-themed television series, I traveled to the Pacific Northwest, and when I was looking at the big Atlas Obscura map of the Pacific Northwest with points of interest around places I was going to be at, I saw a little bullet point on the map that said Halloween Town, and of course Gauntly travels at that time of year, so I thought, well, I gotta check this out. And these films, especially the first one, I mean, all of them the Halloween Town part takes place in this town. It was filmed in St. Helens, Oregon, which is pretty close to Portland. It's like across a river from Portland. And so I went and visited. And right after I got back in September 2019 is when Disney Plus launched. And so I thought, you know what? I've never seen this movie before, so... I want to see how much of the experience I got. So I tossed on Halloween Town 1. And up until this week, that's the only one I had actually sat down and watched. Gotcha. Yeah, I was doing some Googling, of course, in prep for this episode. And St. Helens actually has a nostalgia circuit fall festival where they bring in Halloween Town cast members. And this year, I think they got the actress for The Little Sister... Uh, the main actress for the main character, and then the evil bad boy, sexy boy in the second one. And they also do a lot of Twilight stuff. They had some Twilight cast members there. I I imagine that's got to be driving distance from like the Washington stuff, but I don't really know. Yeah, forks. Yeah. Man, maybe we got to talk Twilight at some point. Yeah, we perhaps. (laughs) Do we got to? We've sprinkled it in at points, but I have some firsthand Twilight experience as well, because, yeah, it is all in that same neck of the woods. Okay. What you'll see if you go to St. Helens is there's this one big old-timey-looking courthouse building, and that's about it. There's, like, a little plaque out front of this building, and the whole rest of the town is pretty nondescript, and so my thinking at the time was... You know, they probably use this building, but I'm, I'm going to watch the movie and see how much of the experience I actually got. Because there's got to be more to it than just this one town square. And we'll see if that holds Yeah. <laughs> so we have four movies to discuss tonight. So what I think I'm going to do, Brian, we'll go one at a time. Uh, Halloween Town 1 through 4. Um, I'm going to do a real light plot recap, but the gimmick I'm bringing tonight beyond just marathoning a Disney Channel original movie series, is I have 
set aside a few bullet points, specific thoughts regarding this. So I have 31 total thoughts about Halloween Town that I will be sharing, okay. peppering in as we discuss these movies. Well, you have 31 thoughts. I think this is going to get thrown off kilter because I also have thoughts. That's all right. Yeah, you can bring your thoughts here too. That that works. So who knows? Maybe we'll be up to 50 thoughts. Or Are there any other spooky Halloween numbers above 31? 666. I don't think we're going to get that high though. <laughs> and then, Brian, we'll wait until the very end to give our Is It Good rating. So Halloween Town 1998 directed by Dwayne Dunham. And I'm sure that name sounds very familiar to all our listeners. And why would that name sound familiar, Brian? It's because he also directed the 1999 Disney Channel original movie, The 13th Year. Right. The shitty decom about being a closeted gay mermaid named Cody in 1999. At least that's how I remember it. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> so here's what happens in Halloween Town. By the way, one of the OG... DCOMs. I didn't look up what number it was. It definitely wasn't the first, but 1998 is kind of earlier than than most of the movies that I think people think of when they think of Disney Channel original movies before the format really hit its stride. And um, one thing I read about this production is it came after Under Wraps and Disney kind of bought the production of it uh, because the is that what it's called? Under Wraps, the mummy one. Right. So I have a couple Under Wraps tidbit okay so yes i believe that was the first in 1997 first to officially be called a dcom disney channel original movie but i was curious i looked up under wraps on disney plus and learned that like in the last two years like 2020 and 2021 those dates could be off by give or take a year but they remade under wraps and they made a sequel to the remake so there's an Under Wraps and an Under Wraps 2 from like 2020 and 2021. And those are up, but they took down the original Under Wraps. Why? I don't know. They remember what they took from you. Hashtag. They, yeah, Under Wraps, you can't watch the original on Disney Plus anymore. That's messed up, man. What if, all right, I don't know. That's disappointing. I want to be able to watch the whole run of DCOMs. Right. It's strange. It's under wraps for real now. Maybe we'll do our uh, our bootleg under wraps watch next year or something, Brian. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. We can watch the whole franchise because there will be at least three films, maybe four. Who knows? Maybe it'll match the Halloween level of complexity of timeline by that point. But anyways, Halloween Town. So here, here's what happens in it. And I'm again, this is just going to be kind of a quick plot summary. So this movie stars Marnie who is a 13-year-old living in the suburbs with her single mom and her two younger siblings. And she and her siblings, but Marnie especially, resent the way that her mom, who's named Gwen, doesn't let the family celebrate Halloween because Marnie feels really drawn to spookiness and, and the spookiness of the season. And the Halloween night when she's 13, Marnie's grandmother, Aggie, stops by and, and Marnie overhears that she and her family are all secretly witches, but that Gwen, Marnie's mom, has given up on that life after she married a mortal, uh, which I guess is the word they use in this universe for a non-magic person. Marnie and her two siblings sneak out of the house and follow Grandma Aggie back to her home, which is in the magical Halloween town, a spooky alternate dimension Halloween 
365 days a year type world filled with Halloween creatures living normal lives. But this town is in the midst of turmoil because some sort of dark force is trying to organize an army to take over the mortal world. And the mayor of Halloween town, Calabar, is an old flame of Marnie's mom, Gwen. And it turns out that he is the one behind this, despite him seeming like a good guy in a a few earlier scenes. And he uses some sort of evil magic to freeze Gwen and Grandma Aggie, um, which leaves Marnie and her siblings. So we have the 12-year-old Dylan, who's kind of a geeky and skeptical type character. And then seven-year-old Sophie, who is like a, a witch prodigy doing magic without really meaning to. They have to work together to make, I guess, a potion and use a Merlin's talisman to defeat Calabar and save the day, save Halloween Town, and save the mortals. And after they successfully do this, Grandma Aki moves in with Marnie's family and begins training Marnie and her two siblings to become witches and a warlock. So that's the plot of Halloween Town. It's, it's really not all that much of a plot. Uh, it's, it's a vibes heavy movie, maybe. A, a wandering and gawking sort of movie, but in a way, yeah, uh, there is a lot of milling around in front of that courthouse. Yeah. So some of my thoughts on this, first of all, it's like a key cornerstone of Marnie's personality that she is into spooky things. That's like the first scene is her arguing with her mom about how much she's into spooky things. And, you know, I think nowadays she would be like a hashtag PSL or maybe she would be the opposite. Maybe she'd be like hardcore into like the what's the name of that really gory one that's in theaters right now? The second one about the creepy clown named Art. I don't know. Oh, Terrifier. Yes. Maybe she would be like a, a gore hound into the Terrifier movies in, in 2022 as she aged up. But what was your take on Marnie's enthusiasm for spooky things? Do you think that it's because she's a witch or because is it like teenage rebellion because her mom doesn't want her to do it? I think it's a little of both. She maybe has the spooky gene. And, you know, far be it for me to fault anybody for being into spooky things. But at the same time, she had me thinking of Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice, where she says, I myself am strange and unusual. (laughs) It's like, just really liking to go to the Halloween store doesn't, like, make you a cool special person. Sorry. I speak from experience, Marnie. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I guess she just, she feels the call to her roots. I think that's probably part of it, too. Yeah. Thought number two, the mom. The mom's a real character. And, like, you know, normally these parents in these movies are pretty unpleasant. But, like, I would hang out with this mom, I think. I think she seems she seems cool. And she's got a romantic life, too. So it's it's it, it adds some depth and some uh, tension to the coming of age stuff. The fact that this uh, mom has some, some full life at the same time, though, Dan, we're both getting on in years. And I also found myself thinking, forget these kids. <laughs> what is this mom up to? Yeah. <laughs> and she's played by uh, April from the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. OK, so if you were crushing on her a little bit, you probably were also doing so in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies 10 years ago when you were watching those. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she gets, I think, slightly less to do as the series goes on, or at least the third and the fourth felt like she had a little bit less to do. Um, But I I liked I liked this mom character and I liked the dynamic, although it struck me that 
Marnie was very sassy to her mom and said things that I would never have said to my parents and would be surprised if my kids ever said to me, I'm just going to be sitting here hating you for the rest of my life, mom. Especially, you know, when the family has magic powers. It's like, basically, they're armed all the time. (laughs) It's like, don't, don't. So do so much back talk. You haven't even had your witch training yet, so right. You got to put your wand where your mouth is. Third thought, thought number three. We never get a backstory on the dad. I thought for sure this was going to be sequel bait. Like, oh, we'll we'll meet what the dad was actually like in a later outing. But he just, we never find out what happened to him. Am, am I wrong? No, you're right. It's like. The Bewitched setup, except there's never a Darren that you see. I don't know that reference. Oh, you've never watched Bewitched at all? I mean, I don't... Maybe like one or two episodes when I was a kid. Okay. Well, that's set up where it's the witch is the 50s housewife, and she's kind of left the magical realm, and her mother, Andorra, is... The, the powerful, like, witch queen, but also just the nasty haranguing mother-in-law mm. 50s trope. And she's always coming around to give the mortal husband a hard time. And his name is Darren. Okay, gotcha. Thought number four. I like the siblings. I thought they were all good characters. They each have their role. You kind of have the main, slightly pre- precocious uh, protagonist. And then you have the gawky, geeky brother who I I continued to like throughout the series. I thought he had a good flavor. And then you have the younger sister who is the one who's like secretly getting stuff done, which is a dynamic that I think can can often be fun. So I I thought it was a good balance between the three characters. Yeah, I broadly liked Marnie and Sophie, the sisters. Mm -hmm. Dylan grew on me as the series went, but in this first movie, I don't like him at all. And it's because they wrote him to be, like, very precocious and, like, using big words and, like, reading the dictionary for fun. But I really got the sense that in this first one, the kid, like, didn't know what he was talking about. He was just parroting, you know, reading the words off the page and not really gleaning any meaning. I think there's something to that, yeah. Yeah. He felt like, a, I don't know, I guess I just liked the actor and I thought that he he seemed like someone who could have been cast in like uh, one of those 90s Nick sitcoms or something like that and like carried a show. Maybe not carried, but like been a, a, a key component of one of those like Pete versus Pete type shows or something. Pete and Pete, not Pete versus Pete. They're they're on the same team. Thought number five. So this uh, unsurprisingly for a 1998 TV movie. This is all practical effects and, and makeup. So, Brian, what was your take as someone who's been on the, the low-budget horror beat himself? What would you say about the production values we get here? They're low. Pretty egregiously low at times, but it's weird. What it had me thinking of was Max Magician that we talked about last year, the film that was independently produced at the Maryland Renaissance Festival. Because in that one, we talked about how, like, randomly you'll have a character who has like almost Lord of the Rings grade level orc makeup, but then they'll be next to somebody in like a target fairy costume. And this entire movie is like that. (laughs) And really, I cannot oversell like 80% of the runtime is people in this spectrum of quality 
levels of Halloween costumes just walking around in front of this courthouse building. They're just walking around this town square. And there's like Diagon Alley storefronts, but there's not a lot else. It's it's just people walking around. And, okay, one other thing. I know you got your checklist of thoughts. No, it's okay. Go for it. So the whole time, this movie is scored by Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo. Mm. He also scored Pee-wee's Playhouse and he scored Rugrats. And to me, this soundtrack sounds a lot more like Pee-wee or Rugrats than anything specifically Halloween themed. It's just Mark Mothersbaugh like noodling on the keyboard, like and like all these cartoon sounds just the whole time. So that didn't add to the spooky factor for you. Not to me. It's like No, that's West Side Story, sorry. Uh less tuneful than that. Yeah, there's one theme that you sent to me that I definitely remember hearing at least a couple times. I don't know. It just felt like a decom to me. I didn't really even think too much. of it. That's pretty interesting that they had someone from Devo doing the score. I feel like the production stuff is a little more anonymous when they make decoms these, these days. But who knows? All right. Thought number six. So Grandma Aggie is played by Debbie Reynolds, who has to be one of the bigger names to appear in a Disney Channel original movie. She's the, the lead actress of Singing in the Rain. And I would say she surpasses Uncle Joey, at least, from the, the 13th year. That Was that the one he was in, the 13th year? Yes. Yeah, because he, he had, like, the restaurant boat or something. But right. um, I, I also thought that she had some genuine charisma, which is sometimes missing in these. Like, you could tell that she has been around Hollywood for a while. She just knew how to carry herself on in front of the camera. Right. Uh, thought number seven goes back to what you said here just a moment ago. I thought one thing that was kind of interesting about this. So this movie came out in 1998. The first Harry Potter book came out in 1997. I've been wondering if there was some direct inspiration or just like coincidentally, it had a lot of the same themes and ideas, especially of the first Harry Potter book, because it's like the whole gimmick here is this is like a postmodern Halloween town where we see spooky creatures, but they're not spooky in this context. They're just barbers and just going grocery shopping and milling about in front of a courthouse. Right. I'm glad you said that. We hadn't really described what Halloween town is too much. Mm-hmm. So it's this parallel dimension where at some point in history, all of the magical creatures decided that to like, be safe from humans and not persecuted by humans. They were going to go off and live in this other dimension and they can only pass through the veil at Halloween. You can only travel either way between the worlds on Halloween. Is that rule identified in the first one? It's, it's in the first one. And I think it, well, it's abolished by the end of the second one. Spoilers, but it's talked about at some point. I don't know. I think they say it in the first one. Yeah, it's not a key point in the first one, at least, but it, it's, it might be mentioned there that this gateway only opens on Halloween night. But yeah, it, um, in the town, the monsters just do day-to-day livelihood things, mowing the lawn and whatever else. Right, and it did make me think of like a dollar store Diagon Alley thing because there is at least stabs at like gawking at this monster doing this ordinary thing. Oh, the ghost is going to the sauna in the gym. The werewolf is shaving somebody at the barbershop, etc. Thought number eight. 
among those spooky things, I'm wondering, Brian, did you have any favorite or least favorite costumes or props or anything like that? All right. My favorite bit, because I was not expecting it, is there's a like a bus depot dispatcher character who has two heads <laughs> and they go to ask him a question and the heads are just arguing with each other and they never stop like even for a second so they're just yelling at each other and flailing you know each one of them has an arm it's like the two-headed monster on sesame street right although that one to me was an example of somebody just bought some fabric at target and like draped it over them <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's it's not even a costume. It's just two guys wearing a shirt. Yeah. Uh, but I thought it was funny. I don't know. What what about you? Did you have a favorite creature that you saw? That actually leads me to my next point, um, which is the villain here. So the villain looks like Emperor Palpatine. He's kind of like this floating sorcerer dude who has like ooky orc makeup on his face and I think he looks a lot like the prequel Palpatine that we see um, in the those prequel movies. Because he's also got like the long Jedi robe as part of him. Um, and he kind of floats around and zaps lightning bolts out of him. I thought yeah. that was a fun creature. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about the plot of this one. Because it's the one that I paid the most attention to. <laughs> I pretty much watched all four right back to back. And so my attention wandered by the end of like three and especially four. Uh, but in this one, I was paying attention to the plot, and the conflict is introduced in an odd pace. Like, they get to Halloween Town, the kids follow the grandma through the portal, and now they're all in Halloween Town. And there was mention that there's a shadow in the town now. Some shadowy force is causing problems. But... I didn't have a great understanding of what exactly this shadow was or what it was doing that was problematic. Gradually, we find out from Aggie, the grandma, that the monsters are being turned monstrous. It's kind of like in Zootopia, if you've seen that one, mm -hmm. where there's like this mysterious thing that's making the, the one-time predator animals be monstrous again. Or like... Uh, brain drain cereal turning the smart dinosaurs back into monster dinosaurs and we're back uh so it's that kind of thing that they like aren't aren't human like anymore they're getting more aggressive and like, like reverting to a primitive state but then after a while they just disappear and they're not around anymore at all and they're sitting in this movie theater as like mummy husks so there's like a lot of steps to this thing. And yeah, only once, I think only once we actually get to this hell portal movie theater, do we finally see this Palpatine guy for the first time. He he takes a long time to show up. Yeah, he only gets two scenes. That's true. Yeah, it it, it is kind of like I didn't even really understand what the objective was for most of the movie. It's It's like a bad guy doing bad stuff and it's going to be bad news and he's zapping our friends. And that's really the gist of it. Right. But it takes so long for us to see or understand that. Right. Like we see like one of Aggie's friends is like ignoring her and like growls at her when she gets close. Yeah. But it, it just takes a while. That's true. Yeah. By the way, a runner up favorite creature we get 
Um, I really like there's they go to the gym at one point, the monster gym. And there's like there's someone doing an aerobics class who has like not very good cheetah makeup on. But it's like I liked this gym class because they were all different half animal people, creatures of some sort. It's like something that a furry would come up with or would be at like a furry convention or something. It's kind of funny. (laughs) But yeah, so another thing about the villain here, and this is kind of the second half of my 10th thought, is that there's a lot of, this is another Harry Potter-esque thing. There's surprise villains in this. There is like, you don't know who the bad guy's going to be, but it's someone that we met earlier and maybe even kind of liked earlier in the story, who who's the one that's secretly behind everything we've witnessed. So in this case, it's Calabar, the mayor who also happens to be a former fling for for Gwen, the, the mom of the family. What did you think of this this guy who played Calabar? He gets one really good line read in there. What is it like? You texted it to me. It's like, uh, you see, the power of evil is better than good or something like that. Yeah. Really sterling writing here. <laughs> but no. So, I mean, even when he's like a normal human, which is most of the time we see Calabar, he's like sleazy. He He's always offering the kids candy. <laughs> That's how you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I do want to know more about his past. I want to see young Calabar Chronicles. <laughs> yeah, we'll get some. Oh, man, that would be the prequel series for this. You right. got like uh, Gwen... And she gets wooed by a mortal, and this makes Calabar all salty. And that's when he turns to the dark side. It's like a, a Snape-type story. Exactly. Or yeah. Um, all right. Thought number 11, that m- movie theater. Very interesting to set like the place of your evil deed headquarters to be in a movie theater. I feel like if you're a movie and you're doing something in a movie theater, you are like doing explicit meta-commentary on that point. So I was trying to decide if there was any thematic purpose to that having it in a movie theater. I'm not sure, but I think this is the coolest visual in the movie because all of these people are sitting in the seats and the movie screen, instead of being like a solid surface, is really like a portal to hell. It's where the Palpatine guy flies in and out of and all of the people who are trapped in this theater are like desiccated shells. It's like they can't leave. They they have to stay stuck to the movie screen. Yeah, it was like they were... Yeah, I don't know. And this movie doesn't really have much to say about consuming media. Like, one way they could have gone is like, wow, Marnie, you obsessed over these spooky stories, but really there's a violent undercurrent to that. But, like, that is definitely not the theme of this movie. So I don't know what it was trying to say by having it be in the, the movie theater, but I agree it was kind of a cool visual. All right, so another thought here. Uh, Marnie gets a love interest in every single movie. Every single of the four movies, it's a new love interest for Marnie. So although uh, a couple of them kind of recur as side characters in sequels. So the the love interest this time around is a guy named Luke, and he kind of has like a reverse makeover. You know, you think of the ugly person getting beautiful at the end of the movie. So he starts out as a normal-looking fella, and then by the end, when the dark magic is defeated, it was the dark magic making him generically tween handsome. And uh, he looks like a goblin with like bulging plastic prosthetics on his face when uh, the magic is defeated. So what did you think of this guy? 
So this guy was all over the place. <laughs> yeah, we find out early on that he like sold his soul to Calabar. He teamed up with Calabar so that Calabar would make him handsome. But there's not much explanation beyond that as far as like his motivating factors. So you don't even know that he has interest in Marnie until the very end of the movie when he gets regoblinfied and he's got this big goofy nose <laughs> and he's like, well, I never could have gotten a date with you looking like this. It's like, did we know that he wanted to do that? I don't know. It's like, it just, it seems like a mic drop at the end there. Yeah. Because up till then he'd just been a, he'd been a tool. Yeah. He'd been annoying. He'd been a very obvious minion of Calabar. Right. He, like the first time he even speaks to the main characters, he's like, you want to know what's happening to your family? Well, come with me to the scary movie theater. <laughs> That's all. You should always listen when somebody says that. <laughs> Great pickup line. <laughs> uh, Did you have any other Luke thoughts? No, like I didn't think the actor and actress had any chemistry whatsoever. And I definitely didn't get the vibe that they were like, I didn't feel like they were written as a romantic couple until like the second last scene of the movie, just like you. They maybe have like one encounter where he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not that bad. You know, we can be friends. And then he's good. He kind of sacrifices himself a little bit at the end. Mm -hmm. And then but I, it that subplot wasn't working for me here. No, there's so many things in this movie. It's like I I want this introduced earlier and developed a little more. Yeah. Next thought, thought number 12, skeleton cab driver. He shows up like three times. They're clearly proud of this this prop. What did you think of this guy? And also, what's his deal? He like turns evil for a scene, and I didn't really understand why. I guess he was like zapped by Calabar's magic or something. Right. I, yeah. So this is Benny, the cab driver, and he's a puppet. I like the design of the character. His characteristic is that he is always telling bad jokes like the Jungle Cruise riverboat pilot. But yeah, like this guy is very prominent in all of the movies. He's like a central figure of the town. And he always just experiences whatever like the spell du jour is. So yeah, in this, we have this like feral monster making spell and he seems to get a dose of it at one point where suddenly he's nasty now. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, I liked him. There was one scene where he like tries to grab Dylan, the brother. And, and it's, I, I like flipped, I was scrubbing through the movie just to like refresh on it. And it's really pathetic. Like once you're looking for it, like it's very clear the prop, they just like took a piece of plastic and like shot it so that it came and got on Dylan's shoulder. And he's like miming that he's flailing around being tugged into the cab. <laughs> and it's, it's real bad, but it, uh, it actually made me laugh the second time through. I do I, like I that. that kind of skeleton effect. Yeah. Last thought on Halloween town, 1998, I think it was. So I was wondering, Brian, do you think this movie suggests a springboard for for an entire series to come. Three more movies. The longest decom series, to my knowledge. Not at all. <laughs> I don't think this has the sense of an open door of all these other things you can explore. I'm almost impressed that they did it. That they have three more movies after this. Because it wouldn't have occurred to me. 
What about you? So I actually kind of disagree. To me, the fact that it like sets up this world that has kind of an interesting dynamic of being this postmodern Halloween all the time land. That to me is like, I'm not saying that this is better than any of the other decoms necessarily, but that to me is at least a potentially fertile setting and premise. And maybe if they felt like they had nailed the main character, like a couple of the main characters, and that was something they could revisit. Like the setting plus the characters maybe was enough to draw them in. And who knows, maybe they were just like, yeah, we're going to experiment with doing a series and see if it works out. Because I don't know if this was the first one to get a sequel or whatever. But I don't know. I, I'm kind of on the fence. I, I feel like it, it. out of all of the Disney Channel original movies I've seen, this one feels more like there could be a sequel to it. There could be other adventures in this universe than, than for example, the 13th year. Like I, that one, you know, you, you could never have a sequel to because he would be 14 by the end of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, when it comes to Disney Channel original movies, I feel like there is potential for the Halloween movie to get a sequel because it's like every year you got to have some kind of Halloween movie. So, you know, if you still have those actors in your Rolodex, it's like, yeah, why not? Halloween Town 2, Halloween Town 3. You know, it's like uh, there was that movie Twitches with Tia and Tamara Mowry, and that one got a Twitches 2. And obviously, as I said, we got uh, Under Wraps remake, and now that's got a sequel. And we got Zombies 1, 2, and 3, even though they released them in February instead of October. <laughs> uh, or July for the most recent one or whatever. You talking about the Halloween thing made me think of another connection between... Uh the Halloween slasher series and this series, which is that in both of them, the main characters look forward with anxiety to Halloween because that's when some big anniversary or some big event happens. And so they're always counting down, but it's just very different tones between the two series. One of them, you're talking about a teen stabbing psycho. And one of them, it's, oh, we get to go to a land where there's friendly werewolves and ghosts who sit in saunas and stuff. A couple other bullet points before we move on, because we do have three more movies to talk about. So, time is weird in Halloween Town. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts in Halloween 2 on time. Yeah, it's not even consistent from movie to movie. But I think it's like Narnia rules in the first one, where like you go to Halloween Town and you can spend a lot of time there, but then less or time is passing more slowly in the real world. Like, you'll come back and, and not that much time has passed. That one sentence is the extent of the thought that they put into this rule, I can assure you. But go on. Okay, yes. But then in the subsequent movies, they, like, break that rule or, like, forget it. And they seemingly get it mixed up. Like, as far as what it means to spend an hour in Halloween Town. Well, yeah, it gets real ridiculous. And then in, sometimes they're like doing phone calls between them. But how could you possibly do that if you have time dilation? So like if I say a sentence in Halloween Town, but a, a year in Halloween Town is only a day in the regular world, but our phone call took 10 minutes. Well, what happened during that 10 minutes? Was it 10 minutes in regular world or 10 minutes in Halloween Town world? Or did I sound really slow? Everything I was saying was like 300 times longer on your end than it was on my end or something like that. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, very strange. Any other thoughts on this Halloween town? 
very last thing for now is I found myself recognizing some of the supporting cast. Oh, yeah? And this definitely got, like, crazier and crazier familiar faces as the movies went. Um, but in this first chapter, there was only one for me, which the hip sales creature. <laughs> There's this guy who comes out to sell Marnie a broom in the little Diagon Alley shop. And he's like a zombie, like he's fully made up and he's got like a prosthetic that makes it look like he has a skull nose. So just completely unrecognizable, pretty good makeup job. But I recognized the voice and I was thinking, who is that? And I checked IMDb. His name is Kenneth Choi, an Asian actor. And I realized that I recognized the voice because he played Judge Lance Ito in Ryan Murphy's adaptation of the O.J. Simpson trial, which I've watched like five times. So it's like, wait a minute, I, I know that guy. Who is that? Uh, he was a Portland-based actor. This was apparently his first film role. Ah. I don't know that there's that much uh, Portland-based film production. So this is where he got his start. Interesting. I did feel like there were just random appearances, particularly when we get later in the movies. There's some familiar faces, but... We can trace that thread as we go. Certainly. My my one cast head scratcher in the first one is I was scrolling through the credits and Goblin is played by somebody named Vincent Gambino, who I do not know who that is. But what I do know is the star character of my cousin Vinny is named Vincent Gambini. And I was like, that's what it made me think of. Probably an Italian fellow. Yeah. No, I didn't say Jerry Gallo. I said Jerry Callow. <laughs> the two Utes. Oh, man. Got to be careful. Or we could spend the rest of the podcast quoting My Cousin Vinny. Yeah, let's let's just both give My Cousin Vinny an eight. And that's <laughs> our My Cousin Vinny episode. And, and move on, yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, I don't know. Is it a seven? I'm kind of on the fence. It's got that first half hour is is, is kind of rough. But man, that is that ending so good. Uh Anyways, Halloween Town 2, Calabar's Revenge. This one came out in 2001. It was directed by Mary Lambert, whose other notable credit is she directed the Pet Cemetery adaptation. This movie, less scary than Pet Cemetery, I'm guessing. I haven't seen that one, actually. Is that the original Pet Cemetery or the remake of Pet Cemetery? Uh, the original, I think. Okay. The 1989 one, is that the original? Yeah, I think that was the first movie adaptation. And actually... Guess who is in the original Pet Cemetery movie who's also in My Cousin Vinny? Uh, oh, is it um, The Judge? Yes, it's Fred Gwynn. Yes. Star of the Monsters. So keeping things on the Halloween trick. Maybe, maybe My Cousin Vinny is a Halloween movie, Brian. <laughs> it makes sense to me. Just like uh, every Bruce Willis film is a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. So the, the plot of... Halloween 2, in short, we are now two years after the events of Halloween Town 1, and Marnie and her siblings are full in training witches, and I guess Dylan is a warlock, and it's Halloween night again, and they are hosting a Halloween party where they meet two recently moved-in neighbors, Cal and Cal's dad, who respectively try to woo Marnie and Marnie's mom, Gwen. And as Marnie is giving Cal a tour, 
uh, Cal steals Grandma Aggie's spellbook and does like a little shrinking spell on it. So we know he's bad news. Then, for reasons I don't quite recall, they need to go, they being Marnie and her, her family, need to go to Halloween Town. And again, you can only travel back and forth between Halloween Town and the mortal world, the mortal plane, on Halloween night. So this is their one time to do it. And when they get there, they find that things are changing in Halloween Town. The spooky magic is disappearing. Everything is turning gray. All of the monsters are turning into boring humans who don't remember that they're ghosts and goblins and such and such. Marnie and Aggie are the the first two to kind of go there. I think they're the only two who end up going there. And they decide the way that they're going to resolve this is they're going to find the other spell book. Maybe that's why they went there in the first place, I think. And they can't find it, so they're resolution is they're going to use time travel magic to go back in time to try and find it. I guess that's their reasoning. And their goal is that they're going to undo everything bad that has happened here before Halloween ends. But as they attempt to do this, they are stopped by Cal, who is outed as the son of Calabar. And Marnie did not know that Cal was a bad dude up until this revelation, though the audience did. And he is also trying to take over the human world. And he's going to start doing so at the Halloween dance. And I guess he's... I don't even honestly remember what the connection is between sucking the spookiness out of Halloween Town and how he's going to take over the the human world. It's it's all kind of a vague bad guy plot again. Well, he has a separate plot for the real world because he's making Halloween Town unmonstery, unmagical... But then here at the end, we find out that he is going to turn the humans into monsters the way that he turned the monsters into people. So, like, everybody at the human world Halloween party is going to be cursed to turn into the costume that they're wearing. But why? I didn't get why. I don't know. I don't know why either half of this. (laughs) Like... If he wanted to complete his dad's quest, well, Calavar's quest was that monsters have been sequestered and segregated too long, and they're going to come back and they're going to take over the world. Basically, he's like a Voldemort guy. That, that made sense. This, I don't understand why he wants to do either half of this. I, I guess he feels that the Halloween Town people wronged him and his dad in the first movie, so that's why he's mad at them. But also, he's still mad at the human world, so that's he's got this double plot. That's as best as I can justify it. He he doesn't like anybody. Right. Burning down both worlds. But eventually, Marnie and her siblings managed to create a portal between Halloween Town and the human world, which was... Important because Marnie had missed the Halloween deadline and was going to be stuck in Halloween Town for what felt like a century to her, even though it would just be a year in the mortal plane. But when they managed to create this this portal between the two worlds with the power of all the siblings working together, they all emerge where where Cal is reigning and they're able to take him down and stop him. And that's how Halloween 2 concludes. I felt bad for the bus driver when they cast this spell at the end of the movie, because in the first two films, there's a lot of importance placed on this flying bus that comes through the portal when it opens. Uh, But now, no. Man, he's out of job. 
yeah, they knew that they were gonna have to make Halloween Towns 3 and 4 and however many. They need to break this constraint. We need to make it easier to hop from world to world. And so now the Cromwells can just snap their fingers and there's a portal whenever they want Yeah, one. It's like uh, the Tesla auto-driving car is putting truck drivers out of business, except instead of Tesla, it's uh, Marnie and her, her grandma. All right, so my thoughts on this one. Uh, thought number 14. The time travel in this doesn't make any goddamn sense. I mean, first of all, the time dilation we kind of already talked about. That doesn't stand up to any sort of scrutiny, at least if there's going to be some sort of interaction between the two worlds. But like the notion of time travel here is I don't know if things change like, you know, how back to the future you think about, oh, if you change this then it changes it in the future. But there's just no concept of that in this movie. They can just go into the past and then go into the future like you're moving a bead on a string from left to right. Uh, No change in it. Just no thought put into it. And I'm not saying they needed to, like, create this intricate system of time travel change stuff. But if you're going to do time travel, at least properly do time travel. There was no point for it here. And it didn't make any sense. And it made me mad. Oh, and then it ends. Like, they've lost. And then there's a timeline room that they just jump in that takes them to whatever time they want. And why are you scared about missing the end of Halloween if you can literally travel to any other time? There's too many time travel plot holes here, Brian. Yeah, they have sort of the Bill and Ted system where in that the explanation that Rufus gives is you got to bear in mind what time it is in your hometown. Like your universe in the multiverse is progressing through time as it normally would. So... You got to be aware of that. Like you can go to other dimensions where it's other times, but your dimension is going to keep ticking forward. Interesting. Okay. And that was like, that was like the way that time travel worked like 20 minutes from the end of this movie, which I'm pretty sure is not the same way time travel worked like 40 minutes from the end of this movie. (laughs) Like, I'm pretty sure there were like two or maybe three systems of time travel rules at different points in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Thought number 15. This cast got hit really hard by puberty. I mean, particularly Marnie and Dylan. It was either two or three years filming apart. They look like they have fully grown up in those two or three years. Right, it's kind of the wishbone Halloween thing. And the one that, for me, is like the main example of this is the Wonder Years. Uh, I think it's between seasons three and four. Paul, who's the, the best friend went from this adorable little kid to like a full-on really awkward teenager. And the writers kind of pretty much realized that he was like not very charming in front of a camera anymore and wasn't really given that much stuff to do the rest of the series because he had he had uh, grown out of his childhood cuteness. But And then he became Marilyn Manson. Uh, that, that is actually not true, but that is a popular urban legend. He does kind of look like him, though, if you see pictures of him side by side. Similar face shape. but And it's interesting you bring up Wonder Years and the passage of time, because as Marnie got older, her cleft chin got more and more pronounced. And I think the same is true of Winnie Cooper on Wonder Years. The Winnie Cooper butt chin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely a, a noticeable trait of her facial structure as she got older. Now a Hallmark star. 
and a mathematician writes uh, math books for kids and teens. Oh, wow. Danica McKellar. Her name's like Danica McKellar, yeah. yeah. Uh, when I was on social media more, I, I followed her. Thought number 16. Halloween Town 2 is noticeably hornier than the first Halloween Town. I mean, it's still a Disney Channel original movie, but like Marnie's bringing a, a boy up to the bedroom and they're like making goo-goo eyes at each other. And he turns out to be a bad guy. So I think there's like intentional or otherwise thematic tying of sex to danger here. And obviously it's, you know, it's it's all G-rated. So it never goes any further than that. But I definitely was feeling the steam. That More chemistry between this guy and Marnie than uh, what's the guy's name that we were just talking about? The goblin fella? Yeah. Luke. Who reappears here. Yeah. But of course... Yeah, because Cal turns evil, so then she falls back and she's hanging out with Luke again. Who, to be fair, they changed the makeup so it was a little less goofy. <laughs> yeah. they His nose was not quite as bulbous. Right. Uh, but he just seemed like he was hanging around. He didn't really seem to have an agenda. He's just like the your high school friend who never left the small town. Yeah. He's just, uh, every man on the Halloween Town streets is Luke. He's bumming around, right? Yeah. And then, and no surprise that this was the last one that he appeared in because the writers had no idea what to do with him. But thought number 17. So Cal's dad, or at least the dad that we initially meet, not actually his dad because his real dad is Calabar, the villain of the first movie. But the dad we meet, I think the explanation we get is that he was like a golem made out of frogs. And, like, they managed to break it, and he just turned into a pile of frogs. I had no idea what was going on with this plot thread. It's like, this was pretty goofy to me. Did, did you enjoy this, Brian? I actually liked this. Yeah. That <laughs> of all the things to have him be made out of, it's a pile of frogs. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, literally, yeah. And, yeah, if, you know, if one frog turning into a prince is too trite for you, go this route. You could get a pile of them. Just have many frogs all in one. It made me think of um, of House, the 1977 movie we watched two years ago, where the dude just turns into bananas at one point. <laughs> Except here it's frogs. Banana, banana, banana! Yeah, it is kind of like that. I liked this actor playing the charming British dad. I don't know if I've seen him in anything else. He had kind of like a Neil Gaiman vibe. Like, he probably writes books. Right. He's like, uh, he's, I could see him being in the the Brendan Fraser bedazzled. He's like the late 90s version of handsome British guy. All right. Thought number 18. So when we get back to Halloween Town and the magic is being sucked out of there, we get this really interesting image that will haunt my nightmares perhaps more than anything else in this series which is that the jack-o'-lantern has been turned into a gray cube. And then Cal speaks out of the gray cube and they like CGI his face onto the gray cube and like match the texture over the shape of his face. Right. So he's got a big gray Zordon head yeah. morphing out of each side of the cube and talking to them. We didn't mention the big pumpkin. Oh, we didn't. Yeah. That's central to the town square in Halloween Town. It's like the big landmark. That's the key image. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently they actually do put this up each year in October in St. Helens, but it wasn't there when I visited. Mm. 
um, but like there was a plinth, I think, for it to go on. Okay. And yeah, now in the gray, demonstified, demagicized town square, it's this big Minecraft cube. <laughs> this was my favorite visual of the film, I think. Just this big Minecraft monolith. Yeah. I like it as a replacement for the, the jack-o'-lantern. It's like you sucked the soul out of the, the town. Right. Thought number 19. This movie has pretty intensive, wacky, early digital editing effects, like a lower-budget version of Spy Kids we talked about. If you go back and listen to that birthday episode of Brian's, just like every single... They are playing with all the toys they got, imposing things on each other and doing like weird mirror split screen effects and star wipe transition type things uh, throughout the film. What had me thinking of Spy Kids is a lot of the Halloween town creatures are very ambiguous. They're just kind of like technicolor mutants. And to me, these are fooglies. <laughs> yeah, definitely. They just have they like very colorful, twisted features. Splatting some a putty mask over somebody and painting it light blue. And yeah, it looks like a fugly. That's a good connection for sure. Okay, one other interjection. A lot of the people walking around Halloween Town, especially in Halloween Town 1, but all throughout, there are people who are in non-monster costumes. Like there are people in like Sergeant Pepper band leader <laughs> uniforms. And why does that guy need to go live in the monster realm? <laughs> Maybe when you trip on LSD, what you do is you actually spend an hour in uh, Halloween town. <laughs> That's what it is. You could be onto something. You could be on something. Yeah. Uh, my last main thought on this one, thought number 20. This one's just got weird plot issues all over the place. Just the time travel. The, I have no idea what the goal of the characters are the time dilation stuff they can't make it past midnight but then they can and they can make a portal but how powerful are they as witches not clear to me just i kind of lost my thread on what was going on in halloween town in this one and it would not be entirely regained throughout the the rest of the series as a spoiler but oh really uh, we might differ in some of our ratings we'll see but uh yeah Halloween Town 2, Calabar's Revenge. I swear I had like a Mandela effect thing going on where I could have sworn this was called Calabar's Return, but it, it's not. It's Calabar's Revenge. I was expecting to see Calabar, but no, we get Cal Jr. Uh, by the way, who is Cal Jr.'s mom? Just like we don't know who Marnie's dad is, who is, who is the mother of Cal Jr.? Maybe they ran off together somewhere. Yeah. We need this parallel Calabar side quote. Yeah, for sure. All right, so the third Halloween Town movie is Halloween Town High from 2004. This one was directed by somebody named Mark A.Z. Dippe, Dippy, something like that. And this guy got on my radar a couple months ago because he directed the abysmal marmaduke movie from this year the computer animated movie and i guess he's got his own little animation studio now uh you know good for him still doing work 20 years later almost 20 years later 
But that was not a name I expected to see when I was pulling up the Halloween Town movies, was the guy who directed Marmaduke in 2022. So here's the plot of this one. So a year after Halloween 2, Marnie wants to bring Halloween Town and the mortal world together. So she sponsors a foreign exchange program with the Halloween Town Council to bring disguised fantasy creatures to human high school. She makes like a gamble on her magic abilities, like she'll give them up to that she'll get this to work, even though like the notion of what it is to work was not very clear to me. And then one of the things that the council says is you must beware the Knights of the Iron Dagger, which is an anti-magic human group in the mortal world. And the council fears that this Knights of the Iron Dagger group will try to ruin any of the events where the fantasy creatures are which is, of course, what starts happening. And this whole exchange program is is going poorly. There is some mysterious Knight of the Iron Dagger out there messing things up. And it turns out, by the time we get to the climax, that one of the exchange students, Ethan, uh, I forget what his... All the exchange students are secretly fantasy monsters. I forget what his is. But uh, he is the son of the head council member, and it turns out that there's actually a conspiracy to make this project go poorly between the Ethan, his dad, who's the head council member, and the principal of the human high school, who is the secret member of the Knights, who has been setting stuff up and sabotaging things. And they're trying to keep Halloween Town and the mortal world completely segregated. Marnie manages to expose this, which gets the head of the council guy banished and demagicked, and Marnie gets to keep her magic, and then there's a big Halloween fair at the end where everyone, humans and fantasy horror creatures, get to hang out on Halloween. And that's how Halloween Town High from 2004 ends. So, got a lot of reactions myself on this one. First one is, this is a Disney Channel original movie two years before High School Musical, but... A, it's got a very similar tolerance message. Maybe not exactly the same, because that one's more about, like, clicks, and this one is more about broader tolerance, I guess. But also, just as importantly, we have Ryan from High School Musical, the actor Lucas Grabeel, and Kelsey, the composer from High School Musical, uh, the actress named Alessia Rulin. They both appear in this movie two years before High School Musical. So we got our... Uh, that was some familiar faces. I think certainly I know those high school musical movies more than I know Halloween Town. So I was like, oh, I was doing the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen meme. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I liked some things about this movie. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting angle to have the like two bigoted groups working together. The monsters who hate humans and the humans who hate monsters actually realizing that their goal is pretty much the same and yeah why not keep the dimensions separate i liked that the franchise stretched its legs a little bit breaking away from like we don't have calabar around at all anymore right uh we don't have really much time at all spent milling around the town square you know we're not here in mark mother's boss burbles on the keyboard it takes place almost all in the human high school it feels more like a conventional disney channel original movie to me mm -hmm. like tonally it's kind of the more of the 
here are some teens with a slight fantasy twist to it than at least the last one did. I don't know. But I think that brings me to one of my thoughts here. Slightly out of order, this would have been thought number 23, but one idea in particular I liked about this dichotomy is it comes up that the way that humans celebrate Halloween is like a racist caricature of Halloween Town and its uh, its way of life. And I thought that this was a pretty funny idea. Right. Yeah, they go to the mall and they see like a spirit Halloween. Like, oh, this is so gross. What a misrepresentation of our culture. And they're like especially offended that it's like gory and violent because obviously we've seen that they just like go to the barber shop and stuff <laughs> and, and walk around the square. That's their favorite thing to do in Halloween Town. Go to the barbershop, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where there's the werewolf, right? Going back to Lucas Grabeel for a second, he gets his own dedicated thought here. In particular, his hats get a thought. So I guess he's been typecast as the guy who wears hats in Disney Channel original movies because he wears like three different hats in this one. And he, he also wears them, obviously, in High School Musical. He's the king of the hats in that one. So it had me wondering how this became a thing. Did he like start bringing hats to set? Did he audition in hats? Does he have his own line of hats at home and he just picks one, picks one out for the day? It's like, yeah, I'm feeling this scene. This scene gets a French beret hat. Oh, this scene, no, this one gets like a, a golf style hat. And he was always grabbing one and bringing it there. Or did, was that the costume department's job? It feels like it'd be theirs. Maybe he's got a hat clause in his contract. <laughs> hat kicker he gets yeah he gets final hat cut <laughs> thought number 24 since uh, 23 was the halloween is racist thought number 24 this is the one where i felt like you could have done this as a tv series instead of a movie it's like i like this premise of the spooky high school but this one just had a little bit too much plot and not enough organically fun moments to like really let that premise breathe like I wanted more stuff like, oh, here's a goblin on the, the sports team. Like, I guess like in zombies. And oh, here's something where the mummy, he knew something. So he got an A on his quiz because he actually lived through that thing in history. And I could see like you have a monster of the week and some theme of the week, some generic teen theme of the week. And like you could do, you know, 12 episodes a season for four seasons and uh Get some mileage out of that, I think. I, I want to see this as the spinoff TV series. I think maybe next year we got to watch Monster High. Have you watched any Monster High? Or are you familiar with the doll line? Isn't that a, yeah, isn't that a doll line? Like super skinny, pink skin monster dolls? Right. So wait, you say we got to watch that. It's a, a show too? Yeah. Yeah, That well, it started as like a web series, like little mini-sodes, and then it branched out. And I know this because my friend's wife is like very into the franchise interesting uh, but what's funny i mean it is it draws in all these monster tropes and what appealed to me is there's one storyline uh, like one of the main characters it's a it's this group of girls and one of them is a sea monster named laguna blue and she has a relationship with a lake monster but they have to keep it on the down low because one of them is a saltwater creature and one of them is a freshwater creature and their families would never approve. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. Okay, yeah. If there, I don't know if there's if there's movies or what we would do, but that sounds like something I would uh, 
would watch and, and get a kick out of. And well, I'll definitely cue something up. I mean, there have been movie length things, so gotcha. There's also a computer game franchise that I have the first one in, and I tried one time, and I, I want to try again. But it's like a comedic. It's not quite like a visual novel, but it's like a adventure story type game that's kind of procedurally generated and a little different each time. But I think it's called Monster Prom or something like that. And you get to play as one of the monsters and do goofy high school things, clicking through prompts and stuff. So I want to try that one out, too. Well, there you go. Uh, Yeah, we need to have a way to represent other media, like play narrative computer games and things. Oh, we could do that, actually. That would be interesting. That would be like a twist. It's like we do a video game instead of a, a film one, one week. Right, right. All right. Uh, thought number 25. The Marnie's love interest of the film this time around is a generic hunky guy, hunky teen named Cody. And he's a new teen. And first of all, named Cody. That's the same name from 13th year. And... First of all, this actor looked familiar, and I think you mentioned you had seen him somewhere, Brian. Is this another one of your Polans? Right. So I instantly placed this guy. The actor's name is Finn Whitrock. Great name. Yeah. And he plays Greg in La La Land, the guy that Emma Stone is briefly dating before she stands him up to go to the movies with Ryan Gosling. Oh, nice banker guy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And also, he played the foppish circus villain in the freak show season of American Horror Story. Nice. So he's part of that stable of actors with Ryan Murphy as well. Interesting. Some crossover there. Yeah. I actually really like this character because uh, they did something with him that I thought was, was kind of clever. And it was one of the only times this series I was like, oh, that's clever. I thought that it was... Um, they basically set him up a, like a handsome, seductive, hunky guy who like Marty is instantly smitten with. And he keeps showing up when bad things are happening. So he's like set up to be the secret villain in much the same way that Cal was. But it turns out he's just the red herring secret villain. He's laid out there to like pull us off the scent. Because now we're expecting the secret villains in these. The, the, the nice guy we know is actually going to be a bad guy. But I guess uh, this time they did a little twist on us. I actually wish they had played it up even more because I thought I liked this dynamic. But mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I thought it was funny because the grandma who in this has a job teaching at the school. And it's ostensibly so she can keep an eye on the secret exchange program. But like have her be a lunch lady or something because she doesn't know how to teach the classes that she's teaching. This is not conducive to the health of the American education system. Uh, But anyway, that's a sidebar, but the granny Aggie is giving Marnie a hard time. Like, Oh, you're, you're dating the bad boy again. He just watch. He's going to be the secret villain. Uh, But then it's the grandma who's dating the secret villain, right? The principal or whatever. Yeah. Right. That was fun. He's, he's really the leader of the, the night society any other thoughts on uh halloween town high brian well i just mentioned the knights organization that kind of came out of nowhere i know that they needed a non-calabar villain and i commend them for that but like they even had like a little prologue thing at the start of the movie i think that should have 
talked about what the knights are. It's like, just tell us a little bit about the knight's history. But no, it just recapped, like, movies one and two in a little bullet point. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, my last thought on this one is, it struck me that they had pretty good cast continuity overall in the series, at least up to this point. Like, all of the main actors returned, by which I mean the, the family members. So you have the three siblings and the mom and the grandma. And... I think, I guess those are the only main recurring actors, but we did have a couple of repeats in the first to the second, and I guess the skeleton guy, well, that's just a prop. I think he's probably a different voice actor, but I liked having the same family members recur throughout three movies, because at this point, we're talking six years apart, so, you know, that's kind of a pretty long stretch to keep a, a cast of actors together. Right, it's almost like a sitcom where they grow as a family. Yeah, because then you're seeing the the little girl who was seven at the first one. Now she's a teen by this one and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I also like the spooky carnival. Oh, yeah. That is like really big and sprawling and is where the finale takes place. Yeah, you would go there. Definitely. That brings us to Return to Halloween Town, the 2006 entry. So the story this time is Marnie is now graduated high school. She is headed to Witch College in Halloween Town with her brother, despite some reservations from her mom. While they're there, they meet some spooky creatures as well as some witches and warlocks. Um, but the school has a peculiar no magic rule, the idea of which is that magic users would get an unfair advantage over creatures who cannot cast magic because there has recently been integration efforts here. We also see that there's a secret chest, like a, a treasure chest, that has a family name of Cromwell on it that's located at this college. Um, and Cromwell, by the way, is the name of, the, of Marty's family. And there's like this committee of magic users who I think might be associated with the school, but they're called the Dominion, and they're like a secret society. And they are conspiring to get Marty to unlock this chest because some prophecy says that only a Cromwell can open it and control the gift inside. Marnie somewhat abruptly travels back in time again to investigate this name, it's S. Cromwell, on the chest, and figures out that it's actually her grandmother, Aggie. And Aggie is actually just the middle name of the grandmother. And from young Aggie, Marnie gets the key, she goes back to the present, unlocks that box in the future, and she at first appears to agree to let this dominion, the secret society, use her as like a vessel of power to rule over all of Halloween Town and the mortal plane together, I guess is the idea. And in exchange, they'll spare her brother, who I, they've turned into a dog. Dylan uh, has been turned into a dog. But Marnie has actually set a trap and it turns out one of Marnie's professors, who we've been seeing on the fringes, is actually a witch cop. And they're able to take down the Dominion. And so now Marnie has the quote-unquote gift. And she just gives it to Dylan, the brother, who kind of sets it aside for later. And that's how it ends. So uh, return to Halloween Town 2006. Uh, the college entry. Right. So in this episode of our show... Dan has intended to condense the plot recap, make it really brief and concise. 
here I feel like is going to be the biggest tripping point with that approach because just so many things happened in this movie. Uh, it was just all over the place. And I mean, not that to give it more time and thought would really help explain it any better, but there's just many odd occurrences. Yeah, lots of little subplots in here. It felt kind of crammed together, I would say, more so than some of the other ones. And also just like a lot of stuff happened. It's like, it wasn't really interesting stuff, but it was stuff. Right. Yes, I agree. But I guess give us some of your numbered thoughts, Dan, and and I'll sprinkle mine in too. Yeah, yeah. Thought 27 out of 31. We can now have some cast turnover. In fact, there's a new Marnie, the, the lead character, Sarah Paxton. And she's been in more stuff than Marnie's other actress, but definitely, like, very noticeably a different actress. <laughs> I'll say, I think I have face blindness or something. Because I, I could tell she looked different, but I could not tell it was a different person. <laughs> oh, really? I don't know. Like, the... I was like, her chin isn't as distinct anymore. But maybe she had surgery... But no, it is a different person. Completely different actress. First three movies, it's somebody named Kimberly Brown. And now, yes, Sarah Paxton. Yeah, I thought the the new Marnie... I mean, you know, it's never going to be popular when you recast a long-recurring character. But the original Marnie had, like, a certain stubborn bookishness to her where the new Marnie is just kind of like a generically pretty actress. Um, it felt a little bit less personality to me definitely uh, yes i i did notice that so one other thing though so she goes back in time to the origins of halloween town like i guess the world split apart a thousand years ago prior to the events of the movie so she goes back a thousand years this is like the creation of this separate dimension and i'm looking for the the name okay the S. Cromwell is this witch named Splendora Cromwell. And as you said, yes, Splendora Agatha Cromwell. So it's young granny, except she's played by the same actress as Marnie. So it's Marnie pulling double trouble. It's like the old sitcom evil twin style. She's in two places effect. But this is weird to me. That she's her own grandma. It's like, what is the what is this supposed to mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't mind it when they do this little gimmick where they have like an actress play a young version of a parent because I mean, obviously in real life they wouldn't look identical, but like, you know, you would expect your parent to look a lot like you when you were your age. So mm -hmm. and it's just kind of like uh, emphasizes the how really the parent and the kid aren't that different. Uh, overall but i guess right. there was really not much need to do it here you know there wasn't like big connection between the grandma and the the daughter here that's a fair point i mean there's stuff like that in the back to the future sequels so i guess i can accept it but it just really highlighted to me also that the grandma is a thousand years old which you start getting into like tolkien territory thinking about how could an immortal relationship with a mortal work? Like, between the, the mom and the dad of Marnie, like, these Cromwells, they can live a thousand years. 
that's that's so different from a life a human lifespan so is it only if they're in halloween town when time passes slowly that they can do that or is it that witches have special genes that make it so they stop aging when they turn whatever age or they age more slowly or something i don't know but you mentioned that they call real deal humans mortals that's true which would suggest that the witches are not mortal they are immortal who knows yeah thought number 28 on this one i just thought that this movie despite having a lot of stuff in it was mostly themes and threads from previous entries in the series so far but with slight variations so we got a magic school like halloween town high we got a time travel plot a little bit less incoherent slightly more coherent but still kind of abrupt and odd like the second one oh there's a secret racist bureaucrat well pretty much all of them have had that one so it just really felt like it was a lot of the same stuff with only a couple of fresh things in there so i thought this one was probably the low point of the four although we'll see when we do our is a good rating here in a couple minutes thought number 29 lucas grabeel is back i don't know why he's back there was no reason to bring him back but he's back and now he's the love interest of the week for marnie this time around and maybe the idea was hey he's now got some face recognition because of high school musical because this was a couple years after i guess it was the same year as high school musical so i don't even know which one debuted first high school musical was 06 brian that's right yeah anyways i guess he's back thought number 30 the mom has less to do than ever in this one gwen which i miss i liked her in the first two movies but her her little uh, side plot here is that she is a real estate agent because her she's an empty nester or i guess not entirely oh no she is because the youngest sister we don't ever see on screen but it's mentioned she's training with aggie somewhere right she got judy winslowed she got uh, Chuck Cunningham. She she went up the stairs and she never came back. Yeah. Well, at least they acknowledged her here. That's true. And uh, I, I thought this plot was kind of funny, but it felt like something that would be in a TV show. And it only made me want to see a Halloween Town TV show more. What is the weekly shenanigans of these characters? Right, because she is like trying to sell houses, but people from Halloween Town keep contacting her through parts of the house. So they're like talking to her from the toilet or the washing machine. And she has to like be discreet. Yeah. So Brian, now that we've seen four Halloween Towns, this is my final thought. Do we have any pitches for what a fifth and beyond Halloween Town movie might look like? Anything that came to mind for you? Well, I already said it, but I think... One that's the the one generation previous. You don't have to go a thousand years back. I want to see younger Calavar, a younger mom, and just whatever else is going on in that time period. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I only had a couple. I, I wanted to spend more time thinking about this because I think you could come up with some wacky stuff. Um, the two ideas I came up with, one is well, ever since they did that Spider-Man this year, now I just want... If you ever have somebody recast, I want to see them face up. So I want I want old Marnie and new Marnie in like a why is there? Oh, it turns out time travel creates different realities. So now there's this Marnie and this Marnie uh, and they have to do something together to get the timelines back in balance. That's one story I want to see. OK, well, if you do that, then I want to bring in the zombies cast. <laughs> OK, <laughs> 
Maybe all of High School Musical, and there's two Lucas Grabeels too there. <laughs> They're doing the Spider-Man meme, pointing at each other. Man, yeah. Now <laughs> I just want to decom. That's two Lucas Grabeels, and that's it. It has nothing to do with <laughs> with this world. It's like the two army hammers in uh, the social network. Right. It's like Parent Trap, but with Ryan's. <laughs> Can, can one screen take that many hats? I don't know. <laughs> Too much to handle. The second thing that I would watch is now that we know that there's time dilation and somehow, whether it's genetics or the time dilation, that makes witches last forever. I want like a super dramatic romance, like the time traveler's wife, where uh, the, there's the tragic romance that is more powerful than anything except death. And But the witch lasts forever. So she gets to watch her her true love die. So I want to see like a an adult drama set in the Halloween Town world that has that uses the time travel as like a mechanism for investigating the romance. Yeah, that could be interesting. All right, those were my thirty one thoughts. Thirty one thoughts on Halloween Town one through four. Brian, the the floor is open. More Halloween Town thoughts. Yes, I got a got a couple more. So Halloween Town four. Return to Halloween Town. My big, oh, it's that guy cast member moment came when I think the mom is shopping at a grocery store in the real world and she steps up to the cashier and it's Arnold from Troll 2. They're bagging the groceries. The guy who yells, oh my god! And on IMDb, this is only his second film credit. It's Troll 2, Return to Halloween Town. <laughs> I love it. That's a, that's a great one, man. Troll 2, bringing it in. And actually, the second time we've had a Troll 2 alum in one of the DCOMs we've covered, because the actress who played Holly Waits, the sister who does the, like, rhythmic gymnastics in front of the mirror. Oh, yeah. She played the mom who runs the pizza shop in Read It and Weep. Oh. Also from 2006. Man, there must be some Troll 2 fans over at the Disney Channel executive sweep. You know, it's possible. I think 2006 is the, the year that I first saw Troll 2, so could be. I like it, yeah. Let's see, one or two other thoughts. I liked in... Halloween Town 2, at the end, when Cal Jr. casts the spell and turns the humans into their Halloween costumes, and, like, they all had to have two versions of the costumes, because it's like, one is the goofy, fake, this is a costume costume, and then a second version that's the, oh no, I'm a monster now costume, and this almost had, like, an element of body horror to it. It was like the Twilight Zone episode where they all wear masks at New Year's, but then when the clock strikes midnight, they all take off the masks and they still have the monster face underneath. Oh, man. Yeah, that's good. That that was like a thread at the end. Like, what, what are you going to be for Halloween this year, Brian? What would you be if you were struck with this curse? Uh, this year, I think I'm going to be Bruno from Encanto. OK, what what are you thinking? Oh, man, I didn't even, des I decided for my, my daughters, but not for myself. What I really want to do is be Steve from Blue's Clues, is get that uh, green striped shirt and wear my khaki pants. 
I had dreamed of doing a full Blue's Clues family costume, but nobody has bit on that one. So it might just be me as Steve if I end up going that route. <laughs> I think that'll be good. But, you know, honestly, if I was going to be stuck as someone for the rest of my life, Steve from Blue's Clues would be far from the worst option. Although I'd probably get real bored, man. Those He does deals with some... He's real stupid, and he deals with some real stupid people, if you watch that show. <laughs> but he's nice. He's got a big heart, as as we all remembered last year when we got that Instagram one of Bald Steve telling us that we were all okay, us millennials. Yep. You know, that guy in Halloween Town who's just wearing the old-timey band leader jacket, he would have been okay either side of Cal's plan in Halloween Town 2. It's like, oh no, guess I gotta take my jacket off. Oh no, I gotta put it back on again. Maybe he's like Tom Bombadil or something. <laughs> in Halloween Town. Maybe. The ultra-powerful interloper. Yeah, and he's just always existed. He can resist all those, yeah. That's the Halloween Town franchise. So are we getting to the point where we call it good or not so yeah i'm ready yeah so so what we'll do is we'll go one movie at a time here brian so is it good is our signature section where we each give the movies a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward the good which is an eight out of eight so brian we'll start with halloween town the 1998 original and i will ask you is halloween town good okay well i don't want to start things off on too sour a note but i really didn't like this first movie i was really surprised it spawned as many sequels as it did i'm actually gonna give this a one i just don't see anything to hang a franchise on it really is people walking around a town square more than any movie that i've ever seen before while these goofy keyboard riffs play i don't know i kind of like the family dynamic although i found the brother obnoxious in this first one and and not in a good way not like in an intentional way i don't know i'm trying to think what were some highlights is there's just not a lot to this movie what are your thoughts dan uh, prove me wrong yeah i'm significantly higher on this one than you this is going to get a four from me on the is a good scale that is good-ish so it's not quite good for me uh and it's on the lower end of a four i would say but i really do think this has got like a ramshackle charm to it like even in spite of the low budget it still felt like they had a kernel of an idea this this alternate world where spooky people do normal things and it turns out these characters are secretly from this world very harry potter-esque but i i think that it also worked as kind of like a nice and not too on the nose uh metaphor for coming of age and trying to find yourself but also stay true to your roots and how you kind of clash with your parents when you do those things and i i don't know like it's it's all kind of generic and kind of low budget and like you said just a lot of fluff not not too much you know dig in your heels tell a compelling story but for me the the overall feel of this one not a classic necessarily, but the kind of thing that I can see why it drew an audience and and is something that has persisted because it kind of distills a specific vision of being young in the fall and feeling connected to 
all of that autumnal decay and the the general spookiness, just little flavors of that. So uh, I'm going to give this one a goodish, uh, a four out of it. To me, it's like if you took the whole Harry Potter world and like crammed it down into a Rugrats episode. I don't know. It's it's got that like classy Shupo soundscape certainly, but even like just the the kind of abstract ugliness. I don't know. It it just it it rang cheap to me. So, let's see where we go from here. I do think it suffers quite a bit from the production values, like particularly the setting. It doesn't really feel expansive and inviting. Like it really feels like it's just kind of cheap like you said. But I also found a little bit of pleasure in the sort of hooky cheapness of the monsters kind of in line with the they're not actually that scary. They're just kind of goofy everyday people in a small town. Some of that kind of clicked with me, but you're right. Some of it is just cheap production value. That's I think that's fair. So let's move on to Halloween Town 2, Calabar's Revenge from 2001. Brian, is Halloween Town 2 good? I liked a lot of what was going on here. I feel like the team was given the assignment okay you got to make halloween town too and they kind of looked at their notes and they you know they borrowed some story elements they they did think about okay well where does the story go from here so they did bring back a version of calabar the, the seed of calabar and some of the things they you know they continued on it's like you got to catch the bus and there's the guy who receives all the lost items from the mortal realm uh, but I like the creative directions that they took it in as far as this graying of the town and it's losing its magic. And so you get this whole new aesthetic for the place and there's like the boring human, like basically everybody is becoming Bert from Sesame Street. They're like a, a cartoon of a boring person. And I enjoyed that. And some some interesting production design. You got the cube replacing the jack-o'-lanterns. And everybody has these muted wardrobes. And then on the other side, you have this notably higher budget design for the human world. Where they're celebrating Halloween. They've got, you know, the, the house party that the Cromwells are throwing. And you've got Neil Gaiman wooing the mom. It, just a lot of like dry ice and cool like good housekeeping Halloween ideas that you'd see in a magazine. I don't know. It just seemed like they upped the production value. Things looked a little nicer, a little more plush, and they kind of tried some new things. It wasn't entirely beholden to what came before. So did I give a number value? I'm going to say three. Three out of eight. Not not good. Nice. It's funny. You came at that from an entirely positive angle, and I'm going to be much more cynical, but I'm going to land on the same number as you. Um, for me, if you're adding more plot, the plot should at least be interesting, and I did not think any of this plot was interesting. It didn't really make any sense. The time travel was particularly gratuitously incoherent, but I did like some of the flavor that they added. And I did like the mirrored version where they make Halloween Town unspooky. Like you said, that's that's fun. And yeah, it, we do get some some festive uh, Halloween stuff in in the human world, and just some goofy fun things in here. So you know, some good feelings, but for me, just not clicking as much uh, as the first one. Like I'd rather have the sort of 
thrown together ad hoc cheap hangout vibe of the first one than the time travel that we have here. But let's move on to our third one, Halloween Town High. So this is from 2004. So Brian, is Halloween Town High good? Right. 2004. So I was 14, Dan, you were 16. And I like a lot of what's going on in this one. They really kind of broke free of the shackles of what had been established in the, the first two. Almost no time at all spent milling around that town square. So that alone boosts it for me. They, they, not a lot of the Mother's Ball music. And it almost felt, I mean, you pitched a TV show. Like, that seems like almost what they were trying to set up. It, it feels kind of like Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Because there's much more focus on witch antics in the real world. And one other thought on the plot of this one that doesn't quite gel for me. So they've got this exchange program, except they have to keep it a secret. That's not really how an exchange program works. <laughs> it's like both schools have to know about it. Otherwise, it's like espionage or something. Oh, it's like, yeah, like how are you promoting tolerance if... Everybody is just disguising themselves, so you don't even know that they're different. Right, they have to wear human costumes all the time. How do the knights even find out about it? I think the council knows about it, and so they collaborate with the knights, but not clear, I would say. Right, right. Um, but I'm actually going to give this one a 4 out of 8. A good-ish, because I really like that Halloween party they throw at the end. And it, like, goes crazy, because... The Halloween creatures who are there, they want to create a positive, quote-unquote, realistic depiction of the way that spooky creatures live their lives. And so they've got this, like, wax museum of monsters picnicking and things, and everybody's bored and nobody likes it because humans have built up an expectation of the things that monsters do. And so then the, like, evil council member comes by and he brings all the mannequins to life. And so then they're behaving badly. They're running around doing stereotypical monster things. And it's just chaos at this pretty cool Halloween fair. So I was into that. Nice. Yeah. What about you, Dan? What do you think of Halloween Town High? So I like this one more than Halloween Town 2. Uh, but it felt a little too busy and cluttered. Like, it had ideas, but it was just so beholden to a 90-minute runtime or, like, an 80-minute runtime, really, because I think it was probably two hours with commercials crammed in there when it aired. It's just very busy, and I didn't really get a full enough sense of, like, what I really wanted a, a Halloween Town high school hangout to be. And so it, it ultimately just felt kind of incomplete, but I did like a lot of the, the stuff they did. I liked the wider variety of the cast and more monsters and the new setting in the high school. And so for me, this is a also going to get a three, a not, not good for me. So I'm slightly lower on it than you, but I would see be in, this is the one out of the four that I would be most interested as being the springboard for a recurring story as, as has been mentioned. So I'm going to give this one a not, not good, which brings us to return to Halloween town from 2006 with our recast Marnie. Yes, the final chapter so far. Probably for good, we don't know for sure. It's been 16 years, legacy sequels are in. 16 years, that's crazy. 
But it's true. But Brian is returned to Halloween Town. Good. All right. So this one backslid a little for me. As you said, it's feels like it's retreading story beats. I'm going to give this one a two out of eight. Uh, there's not too much that's new that I liked. Credit where credit's due. I liked Dylan more as the series went along. I thought the actor came into his own and was like actually understanding his lines and why they were funny. Um, I, I liked him. Although three of the movies, like late in the plot, have the twist that, oh, wait, Dylan has magic too. <laughs> because like the sisters are using it all the time. They're very into the, the witch thing. But Dylan's personality is that he's like a naysayer. He's a skeptic. But, like, it's it's an interesting twist when at the end of the first movie, it turns out he can do a spell too. But then, like, in the second movie, it surprises us again. It's like, but Dylan is also a Cromwell witch. It's like, yeah, I mean, were you not paying attention in the last one? We knew that already. Uh, and then in the third one, I don't think he ever does any magic. He just, he, he never does anything. And then in the fourth one, again, it's like, but wait, I have magic too. Uh, and it's like, yeah, Dylan, we know. <laughs> Been there, done that. You, you got into witch school. <laughs> like, you, you were welcome here. You got the scholarship. But, I don't know. That's like a card that they kept revealing. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's more of the same. It's not terrible. Uh, this one, I, I, it's not great. I give it a two. For me, this is the one where it all came crashing down. Combination of the, the recasting, the retreading the ideas, just not really having anything interesting to say. I toyed with giving this one a one just because I didn't really have anything positive to, to say about it. But I think there's some fun stuff on the fringes and just some, some built up affection overall for the, the franchise by the time I got to this point just seeing how it evolved and you know just just some goodwill so i'm going to give it a two a, a lowish two but a, a two as well um that is a not good and disappointed they didn't bring back the the pink troll or was she a troll i forget from the third one we didn't even mention her that's what uh kelsey from high school musical plays there and i, I liked her right and she was a love interest for dylan at least in three yeah that's true. Although it had a weird ending where they, you know, that like early on, there's a, a, like a second to third act breakup where Dylan says he's more attracted to her as a human. And she's like, but I think I'm more attractive as a monster. This is the way that I really am. And then they kind of decide they're going to put that aside. But then like the very final punchline of the arc is actually, no, I'm still not attracted to you. Right. And then they walk apart and it's like, Oh, that is a weird way to end, but okay. And then, yeah, we never saw her again. The two things that brought me from a one over to a two beyond just the general feeling of goodwill is the first thing is I like the, that with the mom was still around, you know, she would have been very easy to write out, but she's one of the people who returns and she has, a little plot of the, being a real estate agent. Again, it feels like a, a B plot in a sitcom episode, but was still glad to have her around. And the other thing that keep me from giving a one is that the most recent movie that I, I rated a one out of eight is Halloween six, the curse of Michael Myers. And I said, is this movie as bad as Halloween six? No, it is not as bad as Halloween six. 
That movie was so bad. So this gets a two out of eight instead of a one out of eight. And there we go. We made it through. Halloween Town. Fair and reasonable. Whew. Well, Brian, that was fun. That was a lot of movie for one week. What are you going to be having me watch this third week of spooky season? That's right. We're closing in on the big day. I think we're going to knock out two more spooky season episodes. Who knows, though? Spooky time is always welcome around here, so we'll see what November brings. But I'm thinking this is probably going to be my last October pick. And what I have decided to choose is an entry in our ongoing Violent Ends series, where we consider two films that have very similar premises, but arrive at vastly different conclusions, often one of which is bloody and dark and violent. And so the two movies that I have brought for us to consider are Pixar's Monsters, Inc., from 2001, and the Joss Whedon film, The Cabin in the Woods, from 2011. Oh, I've never seen Cabin in the Woods. And we are going to talk about why these make an interesting thematic pairing when we dive in next week. But I think it's worth a look. I'm really excited about this. I got a lot of opinions on Monsters, Inc., and I've really been wanting to watch Cabin in the Woods. So this is going to be great. Cool. Yep. We're going to have all kinds of monsters in the mix. Alrighty. Well, Brian, as always, thank you very much. This was fun. Glad to beef up our DCOM numbers. We're at something like 15 now. I don't actually know. 16, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Getting up to like, I think we're maybe past 10% of them, but less than 20% of all the total DCOMs that are out there. But this, this was fun, and I'm looking forward to talking... Violent Ends, Monsters, Inc., Cabin in the Woods next week. Have a good October, everyone. Yes, continue vibing with the spooky season. Talk to you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.